0: Hey guys, this is Kevin with Our Ketogenic Life. Our format has changed a little bit today as we have a special guest, Dr. Brett Schur. Dr. Schur is a board-certified cardiologist who is here to shed some light on the ketogenic diet, heart disease, and cholesterol. He has vast experience and knowledge in this area, and I hope that he will be able to shed some light on your concerns about starting the ketogenic diet and heart disease he has a couple of places where he works he is the medical director at dietdoctor.com which i get a lot of information from and he also has his own personal website lowcarbcardiologist.com so be sure you check those out but here's our discussion with dr sure and we hope that you will get the information that you need about the ketogenic diet and heart disease Welcome to the Our Ketogenic Life Podcast, where we bring you the scientific and daily application of living the ketogenic lifestyle. We have helped hundreds reach their weight loss and health goals, but this is far more than that. We want to help you create real life change so that you can live the life God created you for. Now, here are your hosts, Kevin and Danae Davis. Hey guys, welcome to the Our Ketogenic Life podcast. As you've heard from the introduction, we have Dr. Sheer here today. He is a board-certified cardiologist, and he is here to bring us some clarity on the ketogenic diet, cholesterol, and heart disease. So we welcome you here today, Dr. Scher.
1: Wow, thanks so much for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, I personally have followed you and uh, dietdoctor.com for several years. Uh, I get a lot of information from that, but some of my listeners may not know who you are or what diet doctor is uh, all about. So if you could just give some background to them so they kind of have an understanding of uh, your credentials here.
1: Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so I'm a board certified cardiologist. I uh, did a fellowship in both preventive and general cardiology, and then I went out into the sort of regular real world and sort of practicing as a cardiologist. And um, and actually, I should say my training program was an Ornish style training program because that's how you know preventive cardiologists are trained. And um, when I was out in the world, real world, taking care of patients, I just wasn't seeing. The benefits that I expected. And I was getting very frustrated as my patients were getting frustrated that they weren't getting better. And I thought there had to be a better way. And through some fortuitous events, I started working with a health coach in a sort of boutique um, wellness practice. And he introduced me to ketogenic diets. And from there, I sort of jumped in and did a deep dive in terms of what they were and was shocked to find there's actually scientific evidence and studies supporting their use because... We certainly aren't taught that in medical school or residency. In fact, we're taught the opposite. And um, since then, I've uh, sort of um, started practicing in a, in a low-carb way, but more in a way of focusing on metabolic health and focusing on the bigger picture. Because in cardiology, we can get so focused on LDL cholesterol. We can get so focused on the narrowing in the one artery and we can fail to see the bigger picture. And what's interesting is I think if you talk to many cardiologists, they would all say, of course, there's a bigger picture. But then when you get down to the actual practice, it doesn't always translate. So so that's what I've sort of made it my mission to do, to try and translate um, the practice and the education of what the bigger picture is. And I was fortunate enough to get involved with Diet Doctor, where I'm now the medical director. And Diet Doctor is where the largest low-carb website in the world and we aim to provide the most useful and trustworthy uh, information about low-carb diets ketogenic diets and healthy lifestyles to improve metabolic health and improve health in general Um, so you know where most of our content is free and you can find it all at dietdoctor.com we've got guides and news stories and videos and then we've got a number of different programs people can do like a 10-week weight loss program and a five-week ketogenic challenge and we've got a meal plan or a shopping list and all these other things and a whole video library. So really it's it's just to try and provide whatever content and products people can use to learn more about how to use low-carb lifestyles to improve their health and how to get this in front of more doctors and more health coaches and more nutritionists because um, they're the ones who really can start to promote this message more when they learn um, the, the basics of it and how it's science, science-based.
0: Now, going back to your like education, when did, when did you go to medical school and um, get your fellowship in cardiology?
1: Well, so I, I went to medical school at Ohio State, and that was, let's see, I graduated in 98, and then I did my um, internal medicine residency uh, and a chief residency year, so that took four years, and then did cardiology fellowship after that for three years, uh, finally finishing my fellowship. I think it was 2005, and I was here in San Diego at Scripps Clinic in La Jolla.
0: So how long were you in practice when you were doing the uh, things that we were taught, the traditional medicines, the traditional diets? How long were you in practice when you did uh, doing Yeah, those? it was
1: almost the first 10 years of my practice. Um, probably, uh, I got a. <laughs> the dates are a little fuzzy at this point, but it's probably like eight or nine years um, when I finally said, I need to do something different, and that's when I started boundless health, which was a small boutique practice, but it was really in addition to my regular cardiology job. So I still had my regular cardiology job and I was working with a health coach and a physical therapist, um, in this, in this little boutique practice. Um, and then I did that for a little bit and then went more to the online model. And then finally, after 15 years of, of cardiology practice, that's when I finally left my regular practice to join diet doctor as the medical director. And I still have a, um, an online preventive Telemedicine practice now as well.
0: Great, uh, you know, like I've been out for um, twenty-five years, and you know, when when I first started, you know, we didn't do a whole lot of like uh, nutritional education. When you first got out of school, was it just mostly medications, procedures, those type yep. of things?
1: Absolutely, absolutely, very, very much focused on um, medications and procedures. And then fortunately, though, you know, since I part of my fellowship was a preventive cardiology fellowship, that's where I did get some additional training. And look, you know, the Ornish style program is a great program when it comes to getting people moving and exercising, getting people with forming strong social bonds, um, getting people to practice stress management and stress reduction. Um, And then, you know, the diet part, I'm not such a big fan of because it's it's a very low fat Um, very high carbohydrate diet um, which you know in my experience doesn't work well for a lot of people it may work for some people I'm not I'm not here to say that a low carb diet is the only way to go and nobody can do well on a low fat diet but I'm trying to find what's going to work for the majority of the people and um, what's been sort of misrepresented so from that standpoint I did get probably more nutritional education than the average person but when I sort of had this reawakening and realized I needed to um, help people in a better way, I went back and got more training. So I got trained in behavior modification. I got trained uh, deeper in nutrition. I, I got trained as a personal trainer. Um, I got trained in functional medicine. I went back to get all this extra training because those are things we don't learn in medical school and residency for the most part.
0: Yeah. Oh. Uh, as far as uh, the way that you approach patients now, how, how much different is it? When you first started till now, uh-huh. how do you, how do you first when you uh, first get a patient to come in? Um, you know, and specifically, a lot of my audience is, is concerned about heart disease mm-hmm. and about cholesterol. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot of misconceptions out there because of things that we've been taught, you know, medically and, and and also the general population as far as fat is bad. So, one thing that you know with heart disease coming up with in February. Is is how do you how do you approach that? That is probably not my number one thing as far as people are concerned about. How do you approach someone when they talk when they uh, bring up that concern of heart disease and eating so much uh, uh, fat on the uh, ketogenic diet?
1: Yeah, it's a great question because it's so ingrained in our society and our culture and our medical practice that fat is bad and really it, the main thing that i try and impress upon people is how poor that science is supporting that statement i mean the science is is the worst quality science nutritional epidemiology studies are really the worst quality studies to say this shows this is good for you or this shows this is bad for you it just it was it's not designed for that type of conclusion and it is just it's like swiss cheese with all the holes it has in it in, in ways that you can poke Pull polls in it and say this actually isn't accurate from from data collection from food frequency questionnaires to the biggest one being healthy user bias. I mean, what it really shows is healthier people tend to follow advice of the doctors and, and health professionals and less healthy people don't. That's the number one conclusion we can draw um, from most of those nutritional epidemiology studies. Because if it's the, you know, if it's the 1980s and 1990s, in even early 2000s, when everybody's saying low fat, low fat, low fat, eggs are bad for you, meat is bad for you, fat is bad for you, who are the people eating the meat and the eggs and the fat? Are usually the people who don't worry as much or care as much about their health. It's very different today, by the way, but back then that was wh- that was basically what it was, and the, and the evidence supports that because when you look at these trials, the people who ate more meat also smoked more, also mm-hmm. exercised less, um, and so what else were they doing, right? They were they more stressed out? Were they getting more angry? Um, where they, you know, what else with their diet? They also tend to have like less fiber in their diet and more refined carbohydrates in their diet. So it's, it's sort of a snowball effect to just say they are unhealthy in general compared to those who eat less meat, and less saturated fat. So if that's the quality of the data we're using to say it's the fat that causes the problem, we're in big trouble because that's not the way science should work and that's not the way science does work. So instead, we have to look at, well, unfortunately, we have to look at what's called surrogate markers, which means we can't look at studies that have followed people on a high-fat ketogenic diet for 20 or 30 years because those studies just don't exist. But we have to say, look, as a clinician, I want your overall health to improve. I want your vitality and your enjoyment of life and your overall health to improve. Does a very low-carb, high-fat diet do that? And for the majority of people, the answer is yes. Now, not for everybody. There are some people who just don't like the diet, can't stick to the diet. Some people who actually may see some um, health markers go the wrong way. But for the majority of people, the overall health pattern improves when you stick to a well-formulated, low-carb, high-fat diet. And the fear of fat is something we just have to get over. Now, if you are going to smoke, and eat a high-fat diet and a high-carb diet and overeat calories so that you're gaining weight, of course, that's a bad idea. But it's not specifically the fat. That's the part that's the problem there. The fat is part of that problematic situation. But in a, in a low-carb, high-fat diet, um, assuming you're also living a healthy lifestyle, and the majority of the people following a well-formulated low-carb, high-fat diet don't overeat calories. In fact, studies show their caloric intake goes down and they lose weight and improve their metabolic health that's that's a win and that's not represented in all the studies that people have used to say that is bad
0: I, I i like to circle back to the uh, metabolic health uh, in just a second because i think that's that's the important part of the whole picture. Uh, as far as uh, looking at a patient or a client and you know uh, gauging whether something's successful or not. But before I do that, uh, what about the uh, cholesterol test that people get? Mm-hmm. You know, they go there and they do it uh, just a traditional, you know, we can talk about the NMR, the advanced lipid uh, panel in just a second, but just, just the basic test that most people will get to their, when they go to their doctor's or provider's office. How would you have them interpret that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And when you asked, how has my practice changed over time? You know, 15 years ago, if someone came with a lipid panel, I'd look at the LDL first, and I'd pay a lot less attention to the HDL and triglycerides. You know, if their triglycerides were 180, and their HDL was 37, like, all right, not too bad. Uh, oh, my goodness, but their LDL is 150. We got to do something about this, right? That would be my approach, because that's sort of the top-down way we're, we're taught to look at it. The LDL is the most important thing. But in reality, now I flip that on its head. Now LDL cholesterol by itself is probably the least important thing in my mind. And more important is triglycerides and HDL and some of the more advanced tests that we can that we can get, like you reference. And and part of the problem is, you know, this concern about LDL being the most important thing. One, we have to say, who are the people who were studied um, in those studies that looked at high LDL? And the vast majority of them also had some metabolic dysfunction. They had high triglycerides and low HDL. And when you look at the impact on LDL, when you don't have high triglycerides and low HDL, it's very different. So to say all the, all LDL is the same and all LDL impacts people the same way is just false. Now, it doesn't mean that some LDL has no concern whatsoever. We don't We don't know that for sure, but it's very clear that there's a spectrum in terms of which LDL you need to worry more about, I guess you could say and in the setting of metabolic health with low triglycerides and higher HDL that's occurred naturally, it's a much different parameter. So now when I look at a lipid panel, I'm looking at the triglyceride to HDL ratio first. Then I look at the LDL to say, okay, now what? let's put this in the context and see what it means. And I think that's it's not a hard switch to, to change the way you look at it, but it it, um, it is actually probably the right way to do it. In fact, I just wrote an article at Diet Doctor, one of our news stories, about a paper that came out um, looking at the um, Women's Health Initiative. It was a retrospective look um, to see women who eventually developed heart disease. They had been followed for, you know, um, like maybe 15 years. And those who eventually developed heart disease, they wanted to see what were the biggest predictors. And LDL was a predictor with a hazard ratio of 1.6 and the higher the hazard ratio, the more likely it is to correspond to a risk of heart disease. Well, this, this um, marker for LPIR or the insulin resistance score was uh, six, not 1.6, but six. So it shows it was a much stronger predictor and having diabetes or metabolic syndrome um, or even high blood pressure. Uh, those were all higher than LDL. Those were in like the threes and fours and fives, whereas LDL was in the 1.6. So again, not that LDL had no association, but my goodness, if we're focusing on the one with a 1.6 and not on the parameters that gave us a six and a four, we're definitely looking in the wrong direction. So, I mean, it, it's it's pretty powerful. And now we're getting good evidence to show that that we need to cast a wider net and look at different things, specifically metabolic health, more than we have to look at LDL
0: why do you think that
1: is (laughs) when you have a hammer everything's a nail right the old saying i mean look Mm -hmm. statins came out in the uh in the like 80s and 90s and they became the most prescribed drug ever and and look they they work depending on how you define work Mm -hmm. right so the studies show um certainly for secondary prevention and a little bit for primary prevention statins can reduce the risk of a heart
0: attack now can you Explain okay. to some people who may not know what primary and secondary means.
1: Yeah, thank you for catching me there. Yeah, so um, primary prevention means you don't have heart disease. You just want to prevent ever getting heart disease. Secondary prevention is you've had a heart attack, you've had a stent, you've had bypass, you have some manifestation of heart disease, um, and you want to prevent getting an, an event again. So it makes sense that in secondary prevention, the risk of it happening again is is much higher because you've already shown that you're prone to having heart disease. So when you look at the risk-benefit ratio to taking statins, um, there tends to be a higher benefit uh, in secondary prevention. And in primary prevention, there's a lower benefit. So you can look at the number needed to treat. So if you want to prevent a heart attack, um, it might be anywhere between 30 and 60. You need to treat 30 or 60 people for five years to prevent a heart attack for secondary prevention. But then, for primary prevention, that number just goes up and up and up, depending on the study. It could be 140, it can be 240, uh, depending on the study. So, you know, say you have to treat 200 people for five years to prevent one heart attack. That means 199 people are taking that medication for five years without the benefit. So, you know, it's it's a interesting way to look at it that we don't talk about enough in medicine. But sorry, I got a little off topic. So. You're, you asked, you know, why is that that we've been focusing so much on LDL? So that is one big reason, because we have a drug to treat it. And, you know, I hate to say it, but you look who sponsors um, the conferences and who sponsors uh, even the American Diabetes Association, the American Heart Association, they're, they're sponsored by drug makers. Um, and they're also sponsored by food companies that that create uh, vegetable oils and cereals and Um, so it it doesn't, I don't, I'm not a huge conspiracy theorist, so I don't want to say like, because they're paying these, these, um, these organizations that the organizations are promoting this, but they certainly don't have an incentive to look elsewhere. That's pretty clear that they don't have an incentive to look elsewhere. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily one plus one equals two for that one, but, um, I think it's important to realize we don't have drugs that are, um, that are approved for insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. So no one's paying for it. No one's paying for the research on it. No one's paying to promote it. But now we know that we have very simple lifestyle interventions that can drastically improve insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. And we're starting to get more evidence showing that insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome are directly linked to heart disease risk, probably more so than LDL itself. So the tide is changing. Just things take a lot of time to change in medicine, especially when someone's been practicing a certain way for 20, 30, or even 40 years. To try and get them to change the way they practice is very difficult, very difficult. Um, And especially when the big organizations and guidelines um, don't change quickly either.
0: Now, um, so we talked a little bit about the the standard cholesterol panel that some people get. And do you use the advanced lipid uh, profile quite often? Or is that something you put in practice with every patient that you see?
1: Yeah, for me, I pretty much use it for every patient. And, um, you know, what's interesting is when in my traditional cardiology practice, I followed the guidelines and I said, you know what, the guidelines don't recommend these advanced lipid panels. um, So we probably shouldn't get them. But then I did find, you know, luckily I, I did a little more digging and opened my eyes. And once I realized what was going on, so the, the, they're not recommended by um, traditional guidelines because if your approach is, does this person need a statin or do they not need a statin? If that's your number one thought process, then they don't help a whole lot. But if your number one thought process is, what else is going on? What could their metabolic health be? What is their reaction to the lifestyle that I'm recommending for them? Then absolutely, they are incredibly useful because they give you data that you're not going to get on the standard lipid, lipid profile. So you're going to see the number of lipoprotein particles. So this is where you, know, you need the analogy, right? It's, um, it's not the number of people in the cars that cause a traffic jam. It's the number of cars on the road that cause a traffic jam, right? So the number of people in the cars is the amount of cholesterol you have in each LDL particle. The number of cars on the road are the number of LDL particles themselves,
0: so people the people in the car you, is what you get in your traditional lipid profile, right?
1: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So the number of cars on the road is what you get on the advanced lipid lipid profile, where you measure either an apoB or an LDL particle number, and the amount, the number of people in the cars is the total concentration of LDL that you get on your standard lipid profile. But I want to know how many cars there are on the road. I want to know how many lipid particles there are running around. And I want to know their size because the smaller and more dense they are, the higher the risk of heart disease and the smaller and more dense they are, the higher, the more likely it is that you have metabolic dysfunction or metabolic disease. So that's one certain, one clear benefit to the advanced lipid profile. And those markers change significantly uh, with lifestyle interventions. They do not change significantly with statins. If you give somebody a statin, their percentage of small, dense LDL does not change. Statins do not affect the small, dense LDL particles. And that's a big reason why um, they're not recommended in traditional practice. But if instead you're trying to say, how does your lifestyle impact your lipid profile? then absolutely, you want to know those numbers.
0: I like getting those at the beginning of treating somebody, then six months repeating it. And you can see a marked difference with that. Yeah. Now, uh, going back to like, and what I think, and sounds like you've mentioned this before, is, is a lot of people when they hear metabolic, you know, syndrome, uh, how your metabolic sy- system is. How, how would you describe that to someone as far as like the things that you're looking at gen- besides you know the cholesterol?
1: Yeah. So if you look at the uh, the official definition of metabolic syndrome it involves your triglycerides, your HDL, your blood pressure, your waist circumference, and your glucose. No mention of LDL. LDL is not important for your metabolic syndrome, metabolic health. But now when you look at those five things, again, blood pressure, um, blood sugar, waist circumference, triglycerides, and HDL, it actually turns out that they are all related to um, your insulin sensitivity or your insulin resistance, uh, which is really important to sort of tie them together. So although the metabolic syndrome sort of sees them as five different things, there's really... a there, there certainly can be a unifying cause to all of them, and that's high insulin levels where your body becomes more resistant to insulin. So, what does insulin do? Insulin tells your cells to take in glucose. The glucose levels are starting to rise. Your pancreas puts out more insulin and says, Okay, cells, do your thing, take up that glucose, use it for energy. But there comes a point where the cells are like, No, 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 we don't want any more glucose. We got plenty of glucose. Please tell us to, you know, stop telling us to. Taking more, we've got plenty here. So, what does your body do? It starts cranking out more insulin and say, "Okay, if you're going to resist this, we're going to put out more insulin to really force this glucose into these cells." And what happens is, it turns out to be a battle of rising glucose, rising insulin, rising glucose, rising insulin, and it's not a good thing for your body. I mean that that um, correlation that has been correlated with increased risk of heart disease, increased risk certainly of diabetes, increased risk of cancer, increased risk of dementia doesn't necessarily mean it it directly causes it, but my my suspicion is it does directly cause it, and the data is clear that it is associated with those increased risks, and it all goes along with people who carry too much weight around their midsection, people who have high triglycerides and low HDL and high blood pressure, and their glucose starts rising. So when I'm talking about metabolic health, those are sort of the main factors um, I'm referring to, but to take it one step further, like we talked about with the advanced lipid profile, The other part that factors in with um, poor metabolic health is the small dense LDL particles, or also they can measure what's called VLDL on those advanced lipid tests. And those are the very low dense lipoproteins. Sometimes you'll hear them um, called remnant particles. But basically they are very atherogenic particles, meaning they are highly associated with an increased risk of heart disease. And those increase with metabolic dysfunction as well. So those are other things you can use from that advanced profile to um, see hints about metabolic um, dysfunction. And now the, with this research paper that I, I previously mentioned um, that we wrote an article about a diet doctor, uh, there's this, I guess you can call it new, but LPIR, lipoprotein insulin resistance score uh, that a number of these tests can give, which also tell you about your metabolic health. So those are sort of the tests we can use to, to measure metabolic health, but the underlying issue is is your insulin level high? Are you insulin resistant? And how do you reverse that and impact that the most?
0: Do you check uh, insulin levels fasting? I do,
1: yeah. I, I really like insulin levels. Um, they're helpful um for directional change and they're helpful in, in sort of the extremes, right? If someone's got an insulin level of a level of two, they're you know they're spot on. If they got an insulin level of 30, they're in big trouble. When they're in, you know, the six, eight, 10 range. Sometimes I find those a little less helpful um, because they can go up and down. There is some variation. Um, but certainly at the extremes they're better. And to follow people over time to get a pattern can be very helpful. And then I also like what's called a HOMA IR, which is basically just a it's I R, which is basically just a, a, a fancy word, a fancy word for using your insulin and your glucose, and you plug it into an equation um, that basically gives you how how much insulin you need to keep the glucose at the level you want it at. So specifically, if you have a glucose um, of 102, but an insulin of five, okay, that's not so bad. If you have a glucose of 102 and an insulin of 35, that's a completely different story. Your body's working overtime to crank out insulin and is not doing a great job of keeping your glucose down, as opposed to, your glucose sort of naturally going up a little bit with what we call a dawn effect. And also I wrote a guide at diet doctor about the dawn effect, which I think is helpful for a lot of people to understand and be why their glucose could be high in the morning and not other times, but at a low insulin level, if your glucose isn't high the rest of the day, totally different scenario. So that's where that Homa IR using both the glucose and the insulin together can be very helpful.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit more about some other testing that you do because I think you bring it out really well as far as, you just can't focus on like the standard lipid profile. There's so many other things that you need to look at. Mm-hmm. But for for a lot of people that are listening, they look on their labs and they like insulin levels uh, range from two to 24 or depending on your lab is different. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit why you're saying like two to six and you're not even going up to 20?
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, the, there's a great misconception about, um, a normal lab and, you know, normal means average and just go to your airport and walk around and see who's walking around the airport and decide if you want to be average. And (laughs) unfortunately the average in our society is, is not where we want to be. So, and that's what a lab is when they say normal, they really mean average. So, um, I would definitely shoot for the extreme of normal rather than, you know the the middle of normal, um, so yeah, glucose uh, insulin levels in the twenties um, with a glucose in in the nineties is is too high. Your your you know home IR is going to be elevated, and it it's going to be a sign that your body's working too hard to keep that insulin le- to keep that glucose level in check. So that's why I like to see insulin in single digits for sure, um, and lower is better. Now now if your if your insulin level is is like one uh, and your glucose level is one hundred and twenty. There is something called Modi, which is mature onset of diabetes, which basically means like type one diabetes when you're, um, when you're, when you're older. Mm-hmm. Um, so something to be aware of, like low insulin levels aren't great in every single circumstance, but the majority of the time, it's going to be what you want, um, because it's going to mean you're controlling your glucose with less effort from your pancreas, which means you are insulin sensitive. So So yeah, same thing for like liver function tests you know, the normal for what's what's called an ALT, which is one of your liver function tests, used to be in the 20s, and now it's gone up to the 40s. Over time, it's increased. And why is that? Because the general population has gotten fatter, more likely to have fatty liver. And so the average or the normal um, has started to increase as well. So, you know, I still want people in the 20s or below um, for their liver function test for their ALT, not what the normal says for the lab. Um, and same for glucose, you know, after eating, um, you know, your glucose, if it goes up to uh, 140, um, according to the guidelines, you know, that's great. You know, as long as you're a little bit below 140, that's fantastic. But, you know, you look at people eating a a good, well-formulated, low-carb diet, and sometimes their glucose never goes above 100. Mm -hmm. So I like to see people below 120. And actually, there was a a study showing if you're looking at normal, healthy people, I mean, following with CGMs, uh, with the 94% of the time they're below 120 milligrams per deciliter. So, so this normal of what we have in our, in our mind of normal, isn't it's um, it's average, not normal.
0: So if, if someone's really watching this and they're, they're they're you've piqued their interest, they know it's more than just their cholesterol it, you know, they're more than just their insulin. What other tests do you do to measure that metabolic um, syndrome that they have, or how their body is functioning. Any other tests that you would recommend?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, I would recommend they take a look at our insulin resistance guide at, at DietDoctor.com. But you know, one of the simple things is your just your waist circumference is a great marker. Your waist to height ratio is a really good marker, and those are so easy to do. And then I've mentioned a number of them: the triglycerides, the HDL. Insulin and glucose to calculate a Homa IR. Um, you know CGMs, continuous glucose monitors, are so popular, are becoming more popular, and for very good reason. You can track your glucose, so your um, your glucose levels after you eat. You definitely want below 140, and I say below 120, even better. Um, there are other tests like this LPIR score. Um, there are tests like your adiponectin, and some more sort of like obscure. Um, tests that can be helpful. But I think for the majority of people, just looking at your triglyceride to HDL ratio, looking at your glucose and your insulin. um, And and if you can follow your glucose over time, after you eat, those are the best tests. And then you throw in your your waist circumference or your waist to height ratio. Those are the best ones.
0: What about like, uh, there's testing, you know, calcium coronary scores. Mm-hmm. And measuring the, uh, the, the thickness in your carotids. Do you normally do that with patients?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of those tests as well um, because they help stratify people uh, for their cardiovascular risk. Now, you know, one, kind of the most common patient I see now is someone who's on a low carb diet and has a very high LDL cholesterol, and the regular diet got very worried, or sorry, the regular doctor got very mm-hmm. worried. Um, prescribed a statin, told them to change their diet. And they, they come to see me and say, what else is going on here? And that's where you really have to sort of cast a wider net and say, let's look at things from, the, from a broader lens and see how your overall health is changing or improving or not improving. And then one of the tests you can get to better um, put you in a risk um, prediction model is a calcium score. Because we know with a calcium score of zero, that is extremely reassuring in terms of your 10 year risk for a cardiovascular event. Um, and, you know, versus a calcium score uh, above 400, you know, it, it, it pretends a, a very different prognosis. So you might react very differently to those two things. Um, and then the calcium score following over time can also be really helpful because there are a couple studies showing that rate of progression is possibly as important as the absolute number. Meaning, if you have a high score, but you've changed your lifestyle, you've completely changed the way you're living, and your rate of progression is less than 15% per year, that could also be um, show a protective benefit, meaning that your risk is lower than it otherwise would be uh, for that scenario. So calcium scores can be really helpful from those perspectives. Where they can be problematic, though, is people can sometimes misinterpret them. So you know, you've been living the life you've been living for 45 years. And then you go for a low carb diet for six months and you get a calcium score and your calcium score is 200. And your doctor says, see, I told you that low carb diet was dangerous. You should stop it right now. Look at your calcium score. Well, the calcium scores don't have a timestamp. You have no idea when that calcium was put down. So if that was your first calcium score, you don't know if it was in the past six months or more likely if it was in the prior 45 years when you were living a life which um, made you more metabolically dysfunctional. Um, and so that's, you know, that's where people can sort of get into trouble with calcium scores is they're, they're difficult to interpret in those scenarios because they don't come with a timestamp. And that's where following them over time can certainly be helpful. Now, the other important thing about calcium scores though, is, um, the calcium is in that the scan detects is in the wall of the artery. So think about a hose. The water is coming through the middle of the hose, but you have this plastic wall, you know, around where the water comes in. Well, that's the same with your artery. The wall of your artery is where the calcium is. It doesn't tell you anything about what we call the lumen or where the blood flow is or where the, you know, the actual inside of the hose. It doesn't tell you anything about that. The test isn't designed for that. And what we really care about is do you have plaque in the artery at risk of breaking off and becoming a heart attack? And that's what the calcium score is a surrogate measure for, but isn't itself the problem. So people frequently say, well, how do I get rid of the calcium? And my reaction is usually, well, that's not really the goal. You don't want to get rid of the calcium. You want to make sure it's not clogging the artery or at risk of breaking off and becoming a heart attack. So that's sort of a a slightly different approach. But the the bottom line is you want to improve your metabolic health. You want to improve the quality of your lipids. and you want to improve your overall health in general. And and luckily, there are some interventions that can do all of that together. Um, You also mentioned carotid intima media thickness test, or CIMT, so I'll talk about that briefly. That's a simple ultrasound of the carotid artery in your neck, zero radiation, which is something I really like about it. Um, When you look at a one-time CIMT versus a one-time calcium score, the CIMT is less predictive for risk. But what I really like about CIMT is it's easy to follow over time. It changes fairly quickly. Um, In three months or six months, you can see a significant change with a lifestyle change. Um, So it can be really useful from that standpoint.
0: So, you know, checking that in three to six months. And uh, what about when you're starting someone on on a ketogenic diet and you do some baseline labs? When do you check them again?
1: Yeah. Usually I like to check within six weeks. Um, and, and again, it sort of depends on where, where their starting point is um, and which ones you want to follow more closely. But I, I like to check within six weeks, certainly within three months, you want to check, see what's going on. Now with the caveat again, that there are some studies that show um, LDL cholesterol goes up significantly in the beginning hmm. and can trend back down over, over six months to a year. Now, the other thing to clear up is in the vast majority of people, the LDL does not change at all. If anything, it just gets better because the size and density changes. But the, um, the majority of the people, it doesn't change. Now, in a minority of people, it will go up. Um, and in a subset of those, it will go up transiently and then come back down over time. Uh, usually goes up with more active weight loss. Um, but then in some people, it's going to go up and stay up. And that's you know, what we call the lean mass hyper responders or just the hyper responders. Um, and that's sort of a different subset. Um, but yeah, so that's why I usually like to check it in the six-week six, six week mark, but then continue to follow it carefully throughout the whole year. And usually follow, you know, before getting too upset or worried about it in the initial stages and see which way it's going to go over time.
0: I've I reference a lot of my uh, in my podcast and in, uh, in my clinic as well as far as the uh, Verta Health their ongoing study. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what is it three years out now?
1: Yeah, they they published their three year data.
0: And you know when you talked about metabolic syndrome, every marker seems to be being improving on that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, the clearly the glucose and the need for diabetes medications are improving dramatically. And people are lowering their blood pressure. They're lowering their insulin levels. Their small dense LDL is going down. And when you plug them into their ten-year cardiovascular risk calculator, their overall cardiovascular risk is going down. So, I mean, that's pretty. That's pretty powerful for a diet that's supposed to kill people.
0: Yeah, because you mentioned earlier, you know, there's no um, studies for LDL, you know, reducing heart disease. Um, but there is an ongoing study for a ketogenic diet, at least the markers that we look at for heart disease improving with it. And and I think it's sometimes important for people to know that, you know, like you said, that there's no drug for a ketogenic. So therefore the studies are very limited, but the markers are improving.
1: Yeah, and that's important because we have to follow those surrogate markers. And when the vast majority of them are improving, um, then it really has got to get your attention.
0: So as far as uh, I won't keep you much longer, but as far as the takeaways, uh, people, uh, you know, uh, per the title is you know, uh, ketogenic heart disease and and uh, cholesterol. What's one or two takeaways that you uh, would give to someone who's not a medical person who's just concerned what they've heard? Uh, what's two, one or two things reassuring that you could leave with them to think about as far as if they're going to start or maintain the ketogenic lifestyle?
1: Yeah, the number one takeaway is that, is that um, heart health is not all about your cholesterol. That's the most important thing, that your metabolic health is as important or more important than your cholesterol, but most important is combining them together and taking the, uh, the, taking the broader approach. And if everything is improving, um, but your cholesterol isn't improving or, or going the, the opposite direction than your doctor wants it to, it has to be or should be put into context with the metabolic improvements that you're having because metabolic health is such an important concept. Glucose and insulin and small dense LDL and triglycerides and HDL and blood pressure and waist circumference. I mean, those are all such important markers for cardiovascular risk and for cancer risk and for dementia risk and for just quality of life that if you can improve all those things, you are doing something very good.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the other aspects because that's it. that's one of the questions I was going to ask you. Is what other else do you see improvement when someone does a ketogenic diet that maybe surprised that surprised you at the beginning or surprises the, you know the patient?
1: Yeah, I think the thing that surprised... well, so that's a, a slightly different question. But what surprises what surprised me in the beginning and what surprises patients is is one how easily they lose weight because most people struggle to lose weight. So one how easily they lose weight. Two, how good they feel, how much energy they have, um, how they sleep better and they exercise better and they think better. Um, and then another one is how they're not always thinking about food. You know, people who who obsessed about food, always trying to eat the right things and and eat their the right meals and the right size snacks and count their calories, all of a sudden say, like, oh my God, I didn't I didn't eat breakfast or lunch today. Yeah. I just forgot because I wasn't hungry. And it's the first time they've ever experienced not being hungry and it's dramatic for them. And I, I love it. Every time I see it, I just get a big smile on my face when I see a patient do that. I'm like, yep, that's what happened. So uh, that's that's definitely something that gets um significantly better that people notice. Um,
0: I can take I can think of two or three top of my head that had the same reaction. Yeah. Uh, well, I really do appreciate you being on here, taking the time. I know you're, you're a very busy guy and doing many different things. Can you let our audience know how uh, they can uh, continue to follow you, to reach out if they have questions, uh, anything you want to direct them?
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, well, first and form- foremost is dietdoctor.com. I mean, we, we try to be the, just as good of a resource as we can to all things low-carb, ketogenic, metabolic health, Um, So we have so many different guides and videos and and courses uh, that you can take there. So definitely check out dietdoctor.com. That's where most of my work is now. Um, If, you know, questions for me, you can always reach out at dietdoctor.com or if you're, you know, like I said, I have a a small telemedicine practice, uh, preventive cardiology telemedicine practice at lowcarbcardiologist.com. I can only see people um, in states where I have a license. So there's a few, but um, California... Uh, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, Utah, Texas, Illinois, Ohio. I think that's all of them right now. But anyway, if you're in one of those states and you're interested, you can reach out to me there. Um, yeah, otherwise, you know, you don't have to do this alone. And I think that's the most important thing. You know, There's so much information out there. The key is making sure you're getting the right information, the information that resonates for you and is, is backed by science and is trustworthy. And that's what we try to do Um, at diet doctor so there's there's something there for everybody to help you on your journey
0: Uh, i've checked out your website many times over the last you know few years and it is an awesome website that gives you a lot of valuable information so if anybody's listening and they have uh, questions about ketogenic, I'd uh, really encourage them to, to uh, find dietdoctor.com and uh, get that information. And I'm sure if you have questions, there's people on there that you can get a hold of. But anyway, I, I thank you so much for taking the time out. Uh, we'll let you get back to your busy schedule. And uh, I look forward to talking to you in the future.
1: Great. Thanks so much. Appreciate the opportunity. This
0: podcast is for informational purposes only. No patient-provider relationship is implied or established. This podcast in no way represents the practice of medicine. The information given is to be used at the listener's own risk. Please consult your provider before making any changes. As the contents of this podcast is no substitution for your provider's instruction.